So, so I've been moving house over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, and uh, it's been lovely to have this uh, thinking about the overview of the Old Testament that you're looking at, uh, to uh, think about as an alternative to opening and emptying lots of boxes and things like that. So I'm very grateful. Uh, and uh, uh, I've been given a bit of space, really, before starting on June the 12th. So it's given me um, a wonderful opportunity uh, on different Sundays to visit and reconnect with places, special places and people who have been a really important part of my spiritual journey in Christ uh, and uh, journey in ministry and uh, Nuneaton Christian Fellowship here, this place, and people here are certainly uh, very much one of those special places, places that I hold close to my heart. And I've been thanking God over these last uh, few weeks for all those places and, and people that have helped me uh, to get to this point, who've encouraged me and supported and loved me through this journey in serving Christ. It's, it's so important, isn't it, to have those people who walk with us and journey with us over so many seasons of life. Uh, and it struck me that really that's probably part of the purpose of undertaking this series to do with overviewing the Old Testament. And I understand you're doing that through May and June time. I was with some friends just uh, yesterday, and we were talking about the fact that the Old Testament very often now seems to get neglected uh, in our churches. Uh, it can be quite difficult in places. It can be quite challenging, and we wrestle with it. And so often it's easier, and I know this as somebody who preaches quite regularly, to kind of err to the New Testament because we feel a bit more at ease and a bit more comfortable with it, perhaps. But, of course, the Old Testament is such a large part of our story. It's a large part of the jigsaw, if you like, that forms our identity, uh, the foundation and backdrop of our Christian faith uh, as people who walk in relationship with the living God. So it's really important for us to hold the Old Testament very much in mind, to keep going back, to keep wrestling with it, uh, to keep learning through it, because the Old Testament gives us the benefit of about, I think it is, 1,400 years of journeying with God, of that experience of ordinary people like me, like you, Working out what does it mean in our time, in our circumstances, to relate well to God and to relate well to others. Others being those who are, if you like, within the community of faith and also those who might at the moment be somewhat outside of it. And so many of these themes that we find in the Old Testament are just as relevant to us today as they ever were. And I'm hoping that we'll very much see this morning that as we explore this particular period of Israel's history, this was what John asked me to look at, 
Uh, it's referred to as the United Kingdom, or perhaps more accurately, the United Monarchy. This sort of period that spans about 120 years of Israel's history. It incorporates the reigns of the first three kings of Israel. So we have Saul, we have David, we have Solomon. Um, And as we journey together, I hope we're going to see that this still has resonances and relevances for for, for us today. If I'm honest, as I've been preparing it this week, I've been thinking really how much it resonates with our particular time and season in national life at the moment. I'll uh, sort of say a little bit more of that as I go through. But thank you, Phyllis, for leading us in prayer today for our national life. Uh, Because I think the Old Testament can speak to us uh, into that situation. Certainly in terms of questions about security and identity, which seemed to me some of the the main things that were coming together through this. So just before I launch in, we've asked Daniel this morning to come, and and Daniel's going to read for us 1 Samuel chapter 8, which is, if you like, the beginning of the united monarchy when Israel comes to the prophet Samuel to request a king. So uh, Daniel's going to read that for us. Thank you. Taken from 1 Samuel 8. Israel demands a king. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all their nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have rejected you, but they have rejected me. Uh, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. From being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and, and show them the way, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel's warning against kings. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of the young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. 
And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. The Lord grants Israel's request. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we, may, that we also may be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Thank you, Daniel. That's really helpful just to set that context, uh, to set the scene, if you like, for what we're going to talk about this morning. And if you were journeying through the whole united monarchy uh, in the Old Testament, which we we haven't quite got time to do this morning, because I know some of you will want to go and have some lunch and things like that. Um, But uh, you would need to start where we have in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this first request for a king, and then continue, really, right through the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and into then 1 Kings, uh, the reign of Solomon. Uh, And that's been described as the beginning of the end of the United Kingdom. Uh, It's in 1 Kings chapter 12, if you want to look at that for homework during the week, that the division, the final division between the northern and southern kingdoms, and we we talk in our country, don't we, about a north-south divide. (laughs) Well, there was a long-standing north-south divide uh, in Israel as well. It was something that had been lingering in the background right from the time of Saul's succession to David. And eventually that division becomes a permanent split, if you like, or a long-term split, um, mainly due to some very rash, impetuous and ill-advised decision-making by the Solomon's son, the young king Rehoboam. That's a fascinating passage to read if you have time in the week, 1 Kings chapter 12. But I'm going to put that to one side for whoever's taking that up next week with the subject of the divided kingdom. We're going to stick with the United Kingdom for this part, okay? Um, I just wanted to mention along the way a couple of resources that I've found helpful to me in approaching the Old Testament. Uh, So uh, one's a book, Encountering the Old Testament, by Bill Arnold and Brian Bayer. Uh, If you want a really good uh, accessible overview to every book of the Old Testament, how the themes fit together, and suggestions for further reading, and if you like that sort of thing, study questions as well to look at, That's a really useful reference book. I found that really helpful in preparing for today as well. And the other one I just wanted to mention was this Bible in One Year app. I don't know if some of you have come across this. It was a friend who recommended this to me. And I spent several years living and working in Thailand. And it was Christian brothers and sisters in Thailand who encouraged me to get into the habit of trying to read through the Bible in a year. And I've tried really most years to do that. And that helps us to keep the Old Testament kind of in our consciousness a little bit. Uh, It is breadth rather than depth. But I find this app really helpful. And the good thing about it is you can read it, if you like, but you can also listen to it. So what I do is the first thing in the morning when I wake up, this is the first thing that I put on. It's a a resource produced by Holy Trinity Brompton. 
who've done the Alpha course. It's a free resource, and it will give you every day a chunk from Psalms and Proverbs, a chunk from the Old Testament, and a chunk from the New Testament, all of which, as a bonus, is read by the lovely David Suchet, who has such a beautiful voice. It's a great thing to wake up to. And there's a little short commentary on each bit from uh, Nicky Gumbel uh, as well. So uh, I do commend that to you. And it helps to link in, really, the themes from the Old Testament with the themes of the New Testament. So I just wanted to mention those in passing. I'm not on commission or anything. I just thought I'd mention it. Okay. Now, it was, I think, the famous preacher and evangelist D.L. Moody who said the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge... We might say just increase our knowledge because it does do that. But its main purpose is to change our lives. And that's my prayer for this morning, that we go away from this time together today, not just simply more knowledgeable about this particular period of Old Testament history, but that our own lives, our own attitudes and decisions, the way that we think about things are formed and shaped for the better by the lessons that we learn from ancient Israel. That's the whole purpose, I think, in God of the Old Testament. And I think God might be asking us particularly today, this morning, to reflect on what is the heart of our identity and security, both personally and as a church community, called to be the light of Christ in this particular part of our world, this area of Neaton and beyond it. I think God might be asking us to, to, to reflect on what are the strongest influences on the choices and decisions we make in life? What is it that truly unites us, that holds us together? So can we just take a minute just to pray again now? I'm thankful that John prayed for me, but let's just bring this time again to God. Loving God, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it has power to reach into our very being to change the way that we think and to change the way that we live. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, speak your word to us today. It's you that we want to hear from today and it's you we want to respond to. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to be those who are changed by your love, your living word and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I know we're in the Old Testament, but I wanted to introduce you this morning to Lazarus. It might not be Lazarus as you picture Lazarus, and some of you may be wondering how on earth a wardrobe can possibly have any link to the ancient United Kingdom of Israel. But I promise you there is a link This comes as a result of me moving house, I have to say. And after all, for those of us who know and love the uh, Chronicles of Narnia and C.S. Lewis, there is a good precedent for wardrobes leading to the discovery of wider worlds. So that's my excuse this morning. Uh, 
as I was saying, I've just moved house, and this is my very old, faithful wardrobe. I've nicknamed it Lazarus because it's now on its fourth resurrection, or for those of you who want to be particularly theologically correct, resuscitation, okay? (laughs) Because it's been dismantled and reassembled at least four times through the various moves I've made in the last five to six years. And on the day that I moved house, the removal men came to me at about five o'clock in the afternoon. It had been a long day. And they had this very grave look on their faces. And I thought, oh dear, something's gone wrong. And they explained that they just couldn't face this wardrobe. They didn't think that Lazarus could survive another resurrection. They said to me in no uncertain terms that if they put him together again, they were worried it would all collapse on me. And they couldn't take responsibility for that. So I took pity on them and I said, never mind. I said, you can go home, it's okay. Um, But uh, my dad and my brother who came with my family to help me move on that day, uh, I asked them to have a look at it and I said, look, be honest with me. Give me an honest opinion. Is this the end of the road for Lazarus? And they both looked at it and they said, no, 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 we, we think it's still got a bit of life in it yet. Yeah, we, can, we can put it together, that's fine. Uh, and they, between them, bless them, have got it back together and standing up and it has not collapsed. I have had to promise them that this will be the final time of asking. You see, what I love about Lazarus is that Lazarus is three pieces of furniture united into one. And that's perfect for me. But he has taken rather a bashing over the years. And this time, a piece of him got lost in the move as well. And so we had to get a piece of wood specially cut to get him back together again. And I'm very grateful for my dad's very good skill and patience in helping me with this. And as we were doing that together, he said to me at one point, he said, Gail, have you got any glue? He said this because as we were starting to put in the screws and the nails, there was a lot of cracking that started to appear around these joints where Lazarus has been put together so many times. And I had a slight panic at this point when my dad asked me that because I knew in the midst of all these moving boxes and everything that I could lay my hands. I could lay my hands on where the Pritt stick was. (laughs) But I thought... I don't think Pritstick is going to cut it here. Pritstick is not going to do the job. What we need is some super glue. (laughs) And it took me a little while longer to put my hands on that. Having the right kind of glue was essential to keeping this piece of furniture intact. And you see, I would argue that as we arrive at 1 Samuel chapter 8, here's the link... (laughs) In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is looking for glue. Some kind of glue which is going to hold them together and make them stronger as a nation moving forward into the future. Now, I don't really want to dwell on this B word this morning. You all know the B word I mean, and we hear it every day, don't we? And it's important that we're praying around it. But with our own politics at present and over the last few years, we could, I think, draw quite a lot of parallels here 
questions about glue. What holds us together as a people? What is it that's going to heal these divisions that have become so evident in our own country, wherever we stand in the issue at hand? What is and what will be our identity through and beyond this particular period of transition that we're in? And where does our security lie? So let's have a look at Israel's request for this kind of national glue, if you like. Uh, we had read to us uh, from First Samuel in chapter 8... I'm wondering whether perhaps our own Prime Minister in this week might be feeling a little bit like Samuel, (laughs) perhaps. But as we come to this passage in 1 Samuel, we see that the clock is ticking. And the equivalent of the 1922 committee or the cabinet in Israel are getting increasingly anxious about the future. So they come to Samuel with this request. Shall we just read it together off the screen? Let's just do that. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. That's quite blunt and in your face, isn't it? You are old. and your sons don't walk in your way. Appoint a king for us such as all the other nations have. Now on the surface, pragmatically, this might seem quite a reasonable request. But the question that we need to ask is, is this request for a king from Israel, however good an idea uh, it seems at the time, is it really a God idea? Is it a good idea or is it a God idea? Is it really something that God is putting God's stamp of approval on? Is it something that's come out of a process of listening to God and seeking God's guidance? Is a human king really going to be the glue that makes for this united kingdom they're looking, at, they're looking for? I think to help us with that, we need to look first at what's motivating this request. What are the influences behind it? And I think there are three, it seems to me, three main motivators behind this request for a king. And again, I think we'll see some parallels here. The first is that there's a sense of vacuum in the national life, if you like. The nation seems to be staring this vacuum in the face both in political and spiritual terms. Um, I think if I'm right, last week you were looking at the period of the conquest and the judges in the life of Israel. And judges, of course, ends with that sense of really a moral and spiritual free-for-all. There's that phrase in judges about everyone just doing what seemed right in their own eyes. And in Samuel, Samuel, of course, was both a prophet and a priest. God raised up someone who could bring back a sense of cohesion, someone who listened carefully to God. Samuel's whole ministry started from hearing God's voice and responding to it. And so he's able to bring God's word and God's guidance back into the picture, back into the scene. 
But of course, Samuel can't last forever. And sadly, his immediate heirs, his sons, although they don't necessarily have to be those who take on the mantle of leadership, but his own sons don't unfortunately have that same walk with God that Samuel did. They don't have Samuel's integrity. They don't hold the respect of the nation as a result of that. So there's a lot of uncertainty about the future. There's a leadership crisis. Again, we could think about our news just in this last week, couldn't we? And there's also fear. Of course, uncertainty in itself generates fear. But in addition to that, the nations around Israel, particularly the Ammonites and the Philistines, are growing stronger in force, more hostile, more aggressive. So Israel's own security seems under threat. They're still quite a relatively new nation in the land. And so the northern tribes of Israel, in particularly, who are perhaps geographically closer to those areas, realize that if they're going to hold together as a nation, they need to pull together to unite against this increasing threat from the outside. And finally, and what's most telling of all in this request, is this desire to have a king so that Israel, what, can be just like all the other nations around it. It's a strong one, this one, isn't it? A desire to conform, a desire for conformity with what everybody else is like, because that seems to work. Perhaps there's a kind of envy here, too. They've got something we don't. Surely we'd be much better off if we had that thing. And I wonder if we're honest, and I've asked myself these questions as I've been preparing this week, how much are our own decisions and choices in life formed or shaped by these factors? Vacuum, fear, and a desire to conform whether that's on a personal level or whether it's uh, in our own church identity. Maybe we feel ourselves a sense of lack in life in some area or another, like we're missing out on something that everyone else appears to have. There's even a phrase for it now, isn't there? Have you heard this phrase, FOMO? FOMO, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. That is a dilemma of our 21st century, um, uh, compounded often by social media and the ease with which we can, in a way, compare our lives with other people. Um, And we need to be careful about that. We're so prone to comparing ourselves with others and finding ourselves wanting in one way or another. But it seems to me that those areas we might ourselves consider to be a vacuum in our lives or in our community are often the spaces God can fill and work through most powerfully. Sometimes it's over a long period of time. Sometimes it's in ways that aren't obvious at first. But vacuums, if we allow them to be, are an opportunity for God to be at work. 
wherever we feel a vacuum, the challenge is, as it was for Israel, to trust and to allow God to fill that space. Rather than trying to apply our own pritstick solution and fill it with other things. Hold out for the superglue. Hold out for that because God has a purpose in those vacuums, in those places. Now for Israel, they seem to have come to the conclusion that a king would be the answer to all their problems. If we just have a king, everything will be all right. A king, so they thought, would be that glue that could fix the things that were broken in their society, give them the security they craved, and pull the different tribes together. But the writer of 1 Samuel makes it very clear that human kingship was never God's idea, certainly never God's ideal. Why? Well, of course, obviously, to start with, Israel already had a king. Who was their king? God was their king. I mean, you couldn't want for better than that, could you? Samuel tells them in no uncertain terms that to ask for a human king is actually the equivalent of rejecting God as the king they already have. Now, Jill is my very, very good friend, and so I was trying to think of this in Grand Prix terms. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's, this is the equivalent of having a Lewis Hamilton gifted to your team, absolutely for free, and then saying, well, actually, I think we prefer Gail to drive. That's not a good option at all. I promise you, it's very much a pritstick solution. Monarchy was never God's ideal, because God actually had already put superglue in place to hold the nation of, God, of Israel together, God's idea for a united kingdom with God as king was always based on covenant, not on human kingship. You remember right way back with Abraham in Genesis, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you so that all peoples on earth can be blessed through you. That's covenant. The promise is already there. And I've put up on the screen there uh, just some thoughts about what are the differences between a covenant relationship and a human kingship relationship in terms of how you relate as a nation and as a community. See, as Daniel read to us, one of the first things Samuel stresses to the people is that if you seriously want a king, this will be a new kind of contract. You'll have to give a portion of every single thing you have to the king. And that will be on top of your already tithes and offerings to God, which are part of your community life. So instead of holding responsibility as a community for seeking God's will and guidance, from this point forward, so much of the nation's future will be determined by the quality of that one person who holds the office of king. And that was never really God's intention. 
We see that picture time and time again listed for us in 1 and 2 Kings. If you read in 1 and 2 Kings, it follows a very familiar pattern. So-and-so becomes king, and they're faithful to God in God's ways, and things go well. Or, sadly, in the majority of cases, they're not faithful to God and God's ways, and so the whole nation suffers as a result. And it seems to me this human system is the wrong kind of glue. And the fact that they want to do this just so that they can be like everyone else should have been the biggest alarm bell of all to them, that this wasn't really the right way forward. Because if we think about the whole point and purpose of God creating the nation of Israel through the Old Testament... The whole point of that was that they were supposed to be what? They were supposed to be different. (laughs) They were supposed to be distinctive. They were supposed to stand out from the other nations around them, not just be the same. And it's the covenant relationship with God that makes them unlike any other nation. No uh, No other nation operates in that way, in this loving relationship of trust and dependence on God in a covenant relationship. And God's idea was never that a united kingdom of Israel would exist simply for its own sake and security or benefit. The idea was always that Israel, through walking faithfully in that covenant relationship with God, would be this amazing light to other nations, that it would be so attractive as an alternative way to live in community that other nations would sit up and notice and be drawn to it. That's why there's always, through the Old Testament, this emphasis on welcoming the stranger, the alien, into our midst, because those are the people who are coming because they see something different. And that reminds us of our calling and the challenge for all of us in our lives in Christ, that Jesus would shine in us and through us, that Jesus would be so attractive in each one of us that others would begin to ask questions, that others would start to seek, that others would say, actually, that's something I want to know more about. And so if we're motivated ourselves, and I know this is a challenge for me, by a desire to conform to society and culture as it is, if we're crippled sometimes by unhelpful comparisons with others, let's open our hearts and allow God to transform us. Let's allow God to help us celebrate those very things that are quite unique about living a life wrapped up in the love and grace of God for everyone to see. Martin Luther King once spoke about the church needing to recover something of what the early Christians, the early church had in being a thermostat rather than a thermometer. How many of you have thermostats in your homes? Yes, most of it. Well, I managed eventually in my new house to find where the thermostat was uh, because there was one day last week where it got a bit chilly and I thought, oh, perhaps I should actually check that the heating works, uh, you know, because I'm in this new house. 
so, so I went on a hunt, uh, and I found where the thermostat was. Uh, and, uh, you know, just with one click there, the whole temperature of the house changed. It took a little bit of time, but uh, the heating worked, and that was great. And you could feel an immediate difference, really. Now, that's a thermostat. A thermometer, of course, by comparison, simply records and reflects the temperature that already exists in its environment. The thermostat, by contrast, transforms it. You click that and there's a change, there's a difference. And in the same way, the mission of the Old Testament United Kingdom of Israel and for the church now and through the centuries was not simply to conform to its surroundings and the culture around it and the influences around it, but to change the atmosphere, to change the atmosphere. We talk a lot about climate change, don't we? And that's really important. But we're called as Christians, as those who walk in relationship with God, to bring about positive climate change wherever we are, to make an imprint and an impact on society, to put Jesus-shaped footprints in the places where we are. And God's grace allows us to do that. It's not anything about us ourselves, really. It's just who we are living in relationship with Jesus and the overflow of that. I wonder why we, how we might see that happen where God has strategically placed each one of us. I don't know where those places are, but you do. You know where God has placed you, the people God has put around you. And God can use you to be a thermostat in those places. It might be taking a conversation in a different direction. It might be restoring a relationship that's a bit broken or fractured. It might be about finding kindness over criticism. It might be about persevering with someone who, if we're quite honest, gets a bit on our nerves and who we'd much rather just avoid. Where and how might God be using each one of us as a thermostat? And as much as I wanted to avoid the B word, I can't help feeling that this period in our own national life might just be an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity, for the church to model something different, to be a thermostat. Um, when there was going to be the first, uh, the very first meaningful vote in Parliament about Brexit, uh, I was with my training vicar and at, uh, at an event. And, and at the end of that event, we came to the conclusion, actually, if nothing else, we should be praying as a church about this intentionally. And so what we decided to do was have a day of prayer on that particular day of the meaningful vote, which didn't happen in the end, but we still went ahead. And we opened one of our parish churches uh, and invited people to come and pray during the day. Um, and uh, various people dropped in during the day. And I was there through the day. Uh, and then when, when we got to the end of the day, I stopped in at Tesco on the way home. And I went to this particular checkout. 
And it was a young guy, probably in his 20s at the checkout. Uh, and he said to me, um, have you been at work today? <laughs> so I said, yes, I have been at work today. Uh, um, and just carried on bagging my shopping up. And then he said, what specifically have you been doing at work today? <laughs> and I thought, well, God, there's no getting out of this now. <laughs> I said, "Um, well, it might sound a bit strange, I said, but actually part of my work is praying. I said, and and today I've been praying because we were supposed to have this really important vote that was supposed to be happening today, and we thought it was important that we're praying about Brexit and around Brexit at the moment. And he said to me, he said, do you really think it makes a difference? (laughs) You know, and I said, well, I think, yeah, I said, I think it just might. I think it just could. You know, and I think that strikes me that we have an opportunity to model something different as the church, particularly where it comes to how we relate to one another, how we disagree well sometimes, but hold together. Okay, let's go on to the last slide here. We could say that this idea of kingship as the means, as the glue to form a united kingdom of Israel was then a concession from God rather than a calling. But you see, even though it's not God's idea, God gives the people what they ask for at the end of the day. And that's quite sobering, I think, for us. Uh, We might want to think about that in terms of how we pray Sometimes asking for what we want may not be the same thing as asking for what is God's best for us. And even if we get what we want, we may just end up with more than we bargained for. But this is a story, ultimately, the United Kingdom of Israel is a story, yet another story, of God's grace. The amazing grace of God that works with reshapes and transforms even our poor decisions and choices to make something good and even beautiful of them, to redeem them when we allow them to be like clay in God's hands. So galloping through, Saul's kingship starts well, but the leadership goes to his head and ends badly. It's a lesson in not judging a person's suitability for leadership from their outward appearance. Through David, the kingdom unites after a a short time. Um, There's still the divide between north and south there in the the background, but the kingdom becomes divided. And David becomes this iconic king figure who has the right heart, at least initially. But again, his own personal sin has repercussions and the unity of the nation comes under serious threat from members of of David's own family. Well, it survives that and the kingdom remains united under Solomon and enjoys, it seems, its greatest era of peace, security and international influence. But then again, sadly, Solomon's own lack of personal faithfulness to God despite the gift of wisdom he's given, leads to the breakup of the United Kingdom immediately uh, after Solomon's rule ends, when he passes the leadership on to his son Rehoboam. 
But where does all this really point us? It points us ultimately to the full promise of a different kind of united kingdom where God is king at centre stage through a king who shares our humanity but succeeds where everyone else has failed in living in complete faithfulness to God's covenant, fulfilling that covenant in every way where others just couldn't do that. So in the grace of God, Jesus becomes the real superglue, the true uniter in the kingdom of God. He mends that broken relationship between God and all human beings through his death at the cross and through his resurrection. The ancient United Kingdom of Israel was just a poor shadow, a poor reflection, but Jesus as king, Jesus as king was most definitely God's idea for uniting a kingdom like we have represented here this morning of people from every race, background, language, tribe and tongue. That's the united kingdom with God as king. That's the inheritance we can all enjoy, we can all be part of, and we can all invite others to share in. Now, that's a truly united kingdom to be hopeful uh, about and to look forward to. Amen.